Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The last 18 months were the hardest because I had a transaction. I had a legal battle with Sargon. I had COVID. You know, you name it. We had it thrown at us. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Don't Stop Us Now. We're so glad you're here. Indeed we are. Particularly as today we're excited to share a conversation with experienced founder and all-round impressive operator, Connie McCaig. Connie recently sold OneView, the listed fintech business she ran in Sydney for 14 years. But it was a dramatic journey at times, particularly when OneView was left being owed $31 million by another company which had collapsed. Yes, you heard that right, $31 million. How stressful would that have been? I cannot imagine. Now, full disclosure here, I was on the board of OneView for a number of years and can testify firsthand to how hard Connie worked at the best of times as CEO, let alone when a crisis hit. Now, I wasn't on the board when this $31 million debt arose, but I can only imagine how stressful that would have been. Connie is Canadian and has spent most of her career in financial services. With OneView, she and her 200 employees were looking to disrupt the funds management market by creating a new digital model that aimed to cut out the middleman and reduce fees for end investors. Now, Connie has an impressive list of awards to her name, including being awarded the Centenary Medal for Contribution to Australian Business Leadership as well as twice being named CEO of the year at the Women in Finance Awards, including last year at the same time she was fighting to keep her business afloat despite being owed that $31 million. Incredible. And more on that coming up soon. In this episode, you'll hear how Connie started her career in financial services by accident, how she dealt with her husband's vehement opposition to her business for years, what she learned from the past 18 months, which were the hardest in her career, and her advice if you're looking to disrupt an industry. So get comfy and listen up because Connie has such wise and thoughtful insights on so many topics. Enjoy. Connie McCaig, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Well, good afternoon. We're very excited to have you on the show and good afternoon to you. We're both in Sydney on a rainy afternoon. 
Now, the way we like to start our conversations with all of our guests is to ask this question. If you were to meet someone this evening at a dinner party you'd not met before, how would you describe what you'd do to them if they asked you that question? That's an excellent question, and I will remember to say that at the next dinner party. (laughs) Um, I'm getting my life well integrated, trying to find the right balance between time for friends, time for family, charity work, and, of course, work. Brilliant. And of course, we'll come to why and how you have this opportunity to sort of rebalance your life thanks to exiting uh, the company you'd spent over a decade building in a short while. But before we do, just with that teaser for our listeners, we like to go right back to the beginning and we can hear an accent. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small rural district outside of a place in Montreal in Canada. And I spent most of my time on a farm with my grandparents, actually. Right. And how would you describe that time? Simple. Everything was, you know, very natural. I can remember my grandfather, if I had, you know, a cot or an infection, he'd go and get pine pitch off a tree and put it on and then put a patch. And they were very down-to-earth farmers. They worked extremely hard. And I think it taught me quite a lot about nature and working hard. And although we do that in many industries, I still think farmers don't get much respite seven days a week, particularly if they're in dairy farming, which my grandparents were. You're right, absolutely. The dairy farming routine just seems incredibly onerous to someone like a city slicker like me. And what about your parents? Were they in your childhood much? They more came and went in that my dad was in engineering and he was often sent to remote places and my mother went with him. And really, if I think back about the real stable points of my childhood, they were really around my grandparents. My grandmother was French Canadian and all of its, you know, rich tapestry in that she was incredibly creative and there was always something warm and nourishing on the stove. And my grandparents loved me unconditionally and were always there. And I think they gave me quite a solid foundation. That counts for a lot. And did you speak French as your first language at home? I rotated between French and English in that my grandmother's name was Liliane Lavadière and she spoke predominantly French and my grandfather's name was McCaig, Frederick McCaig, and he spoke predominantly English. So I moved between the two languages, as did my brother when he was growing up. I'm envious of that. I, I would love to be truly bilingual. And what did you imagine you'd want to do when you were grown up, when you were a child on the farm? Well, this is really quite interesting because a lot of women in particular ask me what my ambitions were, etc. And do you, you know, sometimes there's a point and you remember that point and what your aspiration was. And there was this little town close to the farm called Timwick. And in Timwick, I had a number of cousins who lived there. And I can remember one of my cousins buying a house for $28,000. And I thought it was the prettiest little house. And all I wanted was to earn enough money to buy a house like his in Timwick. So Mm -hmm. I've never really had any ambition or plan and 
So when young people today often come up and go, you know, what was the career path and all of that? I just went with the flow. And to a certain extent, I think it kind of avoids disappointment. That's a a, a good way to think about it. And so were you going with the flow when you decided to study journalism at university? Well, that was the way to get my scholarship. So Uh I won the scholarship from the high school. And one of the courses that I could do with the scholarship was journalism. So I left high school and then went to Carleton University and started studying journalism. And then you switched, didn't you? I did indeed. I hated it. And you know, out of curiosity, how rare was it for someone to go to university from your family? Well, uh, nobody had gone to university in my family at that point. But interestingly enough, my mother went back in her late 30s, early 40s and ended up getting a master's in psychology. And things had just evolved in my family. My dad died when I was quite young and my stepfather also has a engineering degree. And my mom went back and I think that really helped her a lot. But as you know, farming then is quite different to farming now. So my grandparents did the normal thing and, you know, quit school quite young and helped their parents out and, you know, worked in the fields and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you studied at university and then you found yourself in the financial services industry. How did that happen? (laughs) It was an accident. (laughs) I had met a um, lady who still runs a group called Collins Consulting. Her name was Sharon Mackey. I'd arrived in Australia as a foreign student because I was living with somebody and I decided I didn't want to marry him. And the way to get in, much to his surprise, was I said, I don't have to marry you to get into Australia. I've got in as a foreign student to Melbourne University. The university season didn't start until February, March. And of course, I arrived in September, October. And I thought, well, I better do something. And I knew that Sharon lived in Australia. So I reached out and said, you know, do you have anything for me temporarily? And she said, well, there is a customer service job at a group called BT. And I thought she said BP. And I've gotten an arts and science degree. And I thought, okay, BP, British Petroleum, I might be able to do something. And I arrived for the interview. And of course, it said T, not B. And this guy called Terry Power came out and said, hi, you here for the job? And I said, "Uh, yes, but there's been a bit of an error. He said, well, what do you know about financial services? I said, absolutely nothing. He said, well, come in anyway. And he asked a lot of questions about team play and, you know, what I thought my skills were and things like that. And then I went home and he rang. He said, what do you know about financial services? And he'd noticed that I picked up what was called a prospectus at the time and I'd read it. And I said, I know that it's too difficult for the common Australian to understand and the terminology is too sophisticated and people won't know what they're investing in. And he said, you're hired. (laughs) Brilliant. And I'll forever be grateful to Terry because he took a risk on me. Yeah. Don't you love people like that? And for listeners overseas, the BT stands or stood for Bankers Trust. Not Yes. 
<laughs> telecom, exactly. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So that was a temporary um, role by the sounds of it, you know, your customer first customer service gig at Bankers Trust and you were studying. Presumably you went back to Bankers Trust full-time. Is that how that happened? No, I studied full-time and worked full-time and it was probably the hardest in terms of working hours. I don't think I could do it now. In fact, I know I couldn't. But I literally went back and forth from university to work and often at 10, 11 o'clock at night, I'd still be working in the offices. I remember 367 Collins Strait. Terry Power had, he had this relentless energy and it didn't matter to him uh, whether it was 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock. And they wrote a book, One of a Kind, and in there is actually an altercation that they documented when I had gone to the bathroom at about 9.30 at night and he was looking for me and, you know, he was yelling and going, where are you? Have you gone home or whatever? And I said, no, I've just gone to the ladies. It was a very intense, wonderful, creative, determined environment. And I'll forever be grateful to Bankers Trust because literally, because there were only 12, 13 people in funds management at the time, you had to know a little bit about everything Everybody was really smart, very driven. And I think a lot of the lessons learned have basically held me for my whole career. I was just a sponge at that point. Yeah, no doubt. You went on to spend years and years in the financial services industry, climbing to executive roles in Bankers Trust and Rothschilds, amongst others. And then you stepped out, if I'm not mistaken, and actually ran a literacy foundation and did a year or two of consulting. What was the driver for that quite big change? It was about a year, and I do believe in literacy, and I believe strongly in education. And the foundation that my husband, Michael Cole, and I have, we make most of the investments in children's education. But Bryce Courtney had approached me. I'd met him through a friend. And the Dimmick's Literacy Foundation, they were trying to set it up and had difficulty just getting it established, etc. And Bryce said, look, I'd really like to be involved. I'm the patron. And I was wondering if you could take some time and help me set it up, because particularly with Indigenous children and the high levels of truancy, et cetera, I really think it's important that we get this right. And so I said, OK, I'll take a year off. I'll take a year and a half, actually, because I'll also write um, Michael's father's book because he was in the Second World War and he was a navigator and he had bad Parkinson's. And I said, what I'll do is I'll sit and listen to you for a few hours every day and try and write a book that you can leave as your legacy. I'm just really curious because, you know, a lot of people when they're at the peak of their careers, particularly in financial services, I think, because, well, from outside, it looks like it's quite competitive. Did you feel any sense of concern that you were taking time out or was it just like really just a right time for you? No, if you go back to my first statements about work, I've never really been that ambitious. And if you take ambition and the need to achieve a particular thing out of the equation, then what becomes paramount is your own happiness. And I thought that would make me happy. And it did. And, you know, not many people 
can actually, I'll use the word endure because it's very long hours, very competitive, a lot of smart people, financial services, as long as I have. And one of the reasons is that I can come in and out of it. It's not my whole life. It's very important. And when I'm doing something that I believe in, you know, I give it 110%. But the reality is it's not my life. It's a part of my life. That is such a healthy way of looking at things. Yes, I don't feel I failed because I somehow didn't go up the ladder at a particular time. Because if you don't have that very clear path of what makes you successful, then you can take greater risks. And you can take time out when you want, because it's what you feel you need to nourish your soul. You know, I don't regret a moment of setting up the Dimmick's Literacy Foundation. I wish more people would see success how you see success. Yeah, it's very... We'd all be much happier. And it's very liberating too. It is. And then, of course, you do re-enter financial services. And if I'm not mistaken, this time it's to become a founder in 2006 of the company you went on to lead. And it was more latterly known as OneView, but of course, it wasn't called that in the early days. So what prompted the founding of what was soon or later to be known as OneView? And then I think it was known as Pentafin. Well, there's actually an interim step there, which is I've come in and out of working with the M&A team at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And there's some wonderful people there that I knew well, and we worked extremely well together. And they tapped me back on the shoulder after and said, can you come back and work with us in the mergers and acquisitions? And because I was a bit of a generalist and not an accountant, one of the areas that they were doing due diligence on was technology for Challenger. Chris Cuff, one of the uh, financial services, I guess, well-known names in Australia, asked that due diligence be done on this organization called Pentafin. And I was part of the team that did due diligence on it. And I thought they're in you know, financial trouble. And if somebody doesn't save them, they will probably go into liquidation or become insolvent. And so I came home and said to my husband, I think there's something there and I'd like to buy the business and see if I could grow it. Wow. And so is that what you did? That is what I did once he got over the shock. And um, (laughs) I think a, a lot of people forget that when you're doing a startup, It takes a lot of time and energy and you're driven. Often people who who do startups, they're driven by a vision that's greater than the uncomfortableness of having to take the risks in order to build a business. But where it's really hard is for everybody around us because they didn't buy in. Now, that sounds like a pretty luxurious position to be in. Did you have to raise funds or were you able to actually bootstrap? the purchase of the ailing business yourself? We bootstrapped the purchase of the ailing business ourselves. And what I learned from that experience is I've got the heart of a venture capitalist and my husband doesn't. So for the first five years, he wrote down the investment to zero and wrote off the money that we'd invested. And let me tell you, he was a real pain. (laughs) And I realized he didn't have the appetite to be a venture capital investor. And it was a really tough time for me because I got no respite. I'd go home and he'd ask about it. And he I remember he did this quadrant and he'd come in and because he was a major shareholder with me 
and put it up on a whiteboard and say, you've got no competitive advantage, you've got no business, you've got no external shareholders, basically you've got nothing here, what are you doing? And he'd do that every single year. It became sort of a, shall we say, a uh, marshalling force for those that worked at uh, the company. Oh, classic. Wow, how did you keep going when you had that sort of battering, did it, impact your confidence in the business? No, it made me mad. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. You know, it really annoyed me because I felt that I could grow this business and it was real test for me. And I think we'll all come across this in our lives at certain times. It really tests the metal of whether you know who you are or not. And there's nothing I think that tests you greater than when your family doesn't believe in what you're doing and you still do. And I really reached a point where I thought, you know what, if this is really what I want to do and I'm with somebody who doesn't support what I want to do and if he doesn't back off, then I will choose to do this and not be with somebody who can't support me in something that I believe in. And we have very different interests and we have very different views on lots of things. And I think that was a really important part in our marriage because we realized that we would never be the same. And that's why it works. And sometimes it manifests itself in different ways, but we had to learn to compartmentalize it. And I learned that I will fight for something that I believe in and I won't back down regardless because he's quite a strong character in his own right. But, you know, I was willing to match him on this and I wasn't going to acquiesce because I knew that if it was something he wanted to do, like farming, which he does now, and I didn't want to do it, that I would support him. And I felt that our marriage should be equal in that right. Yeah, good on you for fighting that. And if we come back to one view, you ran the business for 14 years, I think. Did you expect to be in the business that long when you took it on? No, I got it all. I got the GFC after we um, started. And the last 18 months were the hardest because I had a transaction. I had a legal battle with Sargon. I had COVID, you know, you name it. We had it thrown at us. And I'm proud of myself. I stayed steady and I never lost it. And Connie, I'd love to jump in and we might even re-go over some of that territory with a bit more background for listeners. But how I might start that is, and of course, Connie, I know personally how hard you work because I was lucky enough to join the board of OneView back in 2014, just before it went public. I saw firsthand the pace, the intensity with which you worked as the leader, but also your team. And then, of course, as you say, in about 2019, one view was involved in a transaction and sold a bit part of the business to another company, which then went into receivership disaster before they'd paid you for that asset. And so if a memory, it was about I wasn't on the board at this time. I'd already come off because of various mergers. But, you know, you suddenly had a $31 million whole. And yet, you know, you'd already been running, running, running for years uh, at the intensity that I witnessed. How did you survive that, what must have been incredibly stressful time? It was disappointing time. 
because it wiped about $150 million off the enterprise value for a $31 million debt. And it was audited by one of the large firms that had categorized something as equity when it was, in fact, a liability. So, you know, the only way I could get through it was two things. One, around the same time, that poor mother lost her three children when they were walking to get ice cream. Mm. And I thought, this too will pass. Nobody's dead. Nobody's dying. It is extremely unfortunate. I have to take away learnings from this that sometimes things go beyond your control. One of my staff had a great saying, you can only eat an elephant one bite at a time. And that's what I did. I ate the elephant one bite at a time. And I maintained a perspective because everybody that was near to me was safe. And one of my staff said, what will be a successful year for you? And I said, it's not the EBITDA, it's not the NPAT. It's if I don't lose anybody physically or mentally. I don't want any suicides through this because we haven't managed it well. And we really brought a psychologist on board. We kicked up our care for our staff, et cetera. And then I thought, and not lose anybody physically from a heart attack or cancer. And we made it through that year with neither of those things. And I thought, what a wonderful year I've had. Incredible. And how did you keep the morale of your team up during that time? We divided up what they had to deliver. And the CFO, Ash Fenton, and myself took the brunt of the negative things. And we made that a conscious decision because we didn't want to leak through into the team being able to deliver to clients. So we made clients and their delivery their number one priority and pieced it up with very clear milestones so that they had to focus on the next milestone and the next milestone. And Ash and I just tried to block the negativity of the day-to-day things on the Sargon saga, as it became known, uh, as well as the transaction and COVID. And what were your biggest learnings about managing yourself that enabled you to do what you did? Perspective was number one, but I also learned other things. I was really reminded that every business is still fundamentally at its core a people business. I spoke to more shareholders in the last three months of running OneView than I had in my entire career. And you know what? I learned we had wonderful shareholders, good human beings. You connected with them. You learned about who they were. And, you know, to a certain degree, it's unfortunate that I'm not going to run another public company, or I hope I won't. But I wish I would have got to know more of my shareholders better. Because in the end, it was my team and the shareholders who got us across the line on the transaction Ironically, the team and I were never closer than in the last six months of me running OneView. And you would have thought it was the opposite, but it wasn't. And I could have never achieved what I did without them. Yeah, amazing. And it sounds to me as if, you know, that lesson that you've learned revolves quite a lot around empathy, being able to step into those other people's shoes to be able to understand them better. And that has a positive impact on you as an individual. Does that sound right? Yes. One of my first leaders 
said to me, you will fail if you think you're managing a company. You're managing a set of individuals and your job is to get them running in the same direction on behalf of the company's interests. But the minute you look at them as a collective, you've lost. Yeah, so true. I'd love to shift gear now and look briefly just at you know, one view's aim, certainly when I was involved with it, you were really trying to create substantive change in the investing industry and funds management industry and really innovate. It's no mean feat to try and change a billion, billion dollar industry as a little minnow in such a fundamental way. What did you learn from that time and that trying to be a change maker like that? I think it's a little bit of everything. First of all, you can't control extraneous forces, right? So you've got to be very adaptable. Two, timing is important. I think sometimes you can be ahead or behind the curve, and that can make all of the difference. And I think one of the challenges always when you're in the detail of a company is to make sure that you step back and say, was the decision I made then still the right decision for today? And nobody reversed more of my decisions than me. You know, you can't make a decision from 10 years ago and say, oh, well, we tried that once and it doesn't work. Well, hey, (laughs) the world moves on. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you find the time to step back and review your big decisions? Because I think that's one of the biggest challenges when you're actually in a business running it is stepping out. Well, I've always had this ability to get rid of noise. And if you ask my PA at the time, Rebecca, I may have mastered that in that I missed several flights when I was reading books, you know, at the airport and I get (laughs) so involved in it, the plane would basically have loaded and taken off and they'd be calling my name and I'd hear nothing. So when people talk about meditation, I have a natural ability to tune out and I walk, I try and do my 10,000 steps a day, et cetera. And I find moments every day of respite, of peace. And because I'm a strong introvert, believe it or not, I'm able to find enormous comfort in the quiet. And I find at least an hour of that every day. And I think it's really important to have those times. And no matter how busy I've been, I've always taken those times. Yeah, that's just, that's so important. So Connie, what's next for you? Well, as I said at the beginning, I'm just trying to find that balance. I've been asked on a number of boards and I'm debating whether I'm interested in at all in public company boards. I think I've had a long-term board with a wonderful group of people at One Ventures and I'm advising on Seven Consulting, which is fabulous. They're a great project management group. And the other things that I'm looking at are probably large but off the radar where you can help people implement fundamental change. And I'm not really interested in the status of it. I'm not really interested, you know, board fees are not going to make or break my financial outcome. And I'll find things that I like to do with people that I respect. And I think that's as broad and as narrow as it is. 
Yeah, it sounds like you're still on that path where you go kind of with the flow. And what will make you happy. I never left the flow. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good to hear. One of the questions that we always ask of our guests is, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? What advice would I give? That's another very good question, you guys. I'd say that life probably has more ups and downs than you're going to expect. That people are much more important than anything else. Invest in people and changing their lives. And I think the other thing is probably, I would say, never take yourself so seriously that you forget to laugh. I think, you know, laughter and joy, and I have the most wonderful girlfriends. And, you know, at my worst moments, they have really carried me and vice versa. And each of us brings something different to the equation. And I just would say, you will have the next, you know, 30 years of your life. And you'll step back and say, how lucky am I? Yeah. How fantastic. How lucky are you? I am extremely fortunate and I count my blessings literally every day. I think I don't know what I did to deserve this life that I have. And no doubt there'll be more challenges ahead, but I'm extremely grateful for everything that I have. Well, Connie, we are extremely grateful to you for sharing your story and your advice. And it's just been such a joy. If listeners wanted to find out more about you, where would they go to do that? Well, they can always message me through LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure we put that on the show notes. Well, thank you so much. And again, you would understand a startup and the commitment, and it's wonderful to see the success that you're both having and that you have combined a passion and a profession. So good on you both. Well, thank you so much, Connie. It's been wonderful talking. Yeah, so good to chat. I'm going uh, to watch a belated ice hockey game via Skype with my mother in Canada now. And I don't know if the Montreal Canadiens have won or not, but my fingers are crossed. Oh, (laughs) we've got our fingers crossed to you as well. Have fun and laugh a lot. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. What an incredible journey Connie's been on in the past year or so in particular, hey? Yeah, I know. It must be such a relief to have sold the business and to finally have some time and space to breathe and be selective in what she does with her time. I know. You know, I really loved Connie's attitude to pursuing what she felt would make her happy as her primary decision criteria. I think that's so healthy. Yeah, me too. As well as her emphasis on trying to keep perspective, you know, even when her business was under so much pressure where she had the presence of mind to still think, well, 
no one's died. Yeah, that was um, pretty incredible actually in that moment of such stress to be able to step back and kind of have that perspective. So important and so healthy, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. Well, so many interesting insights from Connie there. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for next week's mini Future Proof Me episode. And don't forget to make sure you're receiving our snappy emails each Wednesday. You can join us at don'tstopusnow.co. Have a great week and we'll see you. Can you believe it? It'll be June next week. And look out for our new look next week too. We're excited to tell you more then. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.